This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au I'm going to pray for us. If you've got a Bible, please go to Genesis 37. We're starting at verse 12 this morning. Genesis 37 verse 12, continuing our series in The Dreamer. I'm going to pray. And we're going to look at this word together. Father God, we thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you speak. And Father, we pray now that you would still our hearts, prepare our minds for what you would have to say to us. We believe now, God, that in this moment, that there, for every person sitting in this room, you have something personal and real to say to all of us. So open our eyes, open our ears, transform us by your spirit, make us more like Jesus and help us to know what it looks like to trust you when we're in the pit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Genesis 37, verse 12. Joseph sold by his brothers. This is what it says. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, you remember Israel is also um, Jacob. His name is changed in Genesis 35. And Israel said to him, "Are Are not your brothers pasturing their flock at Shechem? Come. I will send you to them. And he said to them, here I am. So he said, go now, see see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found Joseph wandering in the fields. He said to him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 18. When they, his brothers, they saw him from afar, probably because of his elaborate multicolored coat that he's wearing that gave him away and gave them time to conspire against him. They saw him from afar and before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. So these pits that existed in the wilderness are there. They were cisterns for water. They were used for for watering the flocks as they were pastured and traveled through the land. They were either naturally formed pits and cisterns or sometimes people dug them and lined the walls so that water could be stored in them. And so their plan is to kill Joseph and dump him in a pit where no one can find him. So come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say... A fierce animal has devoured him. And then we will see what will come of this, of his dreams. But when Reuben, Reuben is the firstborn, he's the eldest, he's the one who's responsible for all of this. When Reuben heard this, he rescued him from their hands and said, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And Reuben's plan is that he might rescue him out of the hand to restore him to his father. We don't know Reuben's intentions. We know he's got an estranged relationship with his father. Perhaps he wants to try and reestablish that. Perhaps he just feels responsible. He doesn't want to have to stand before his father and say, hey, you know, Joseph is lost. Joseph got killed, whatever. He tries to rescue him. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him in the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And there they sat down to eat. Let's just picture that for a second. Here's Joseph. He's calm. He's been stripped of his robe. It's 
very clear that there are uh, intentions to harm him from his brothers. They throw him in a pit. And then his brothers sit down and eat lunch. Like, what is happening there? We know from Genesis 42 that Joseph in that moment, it says he is greatly distressed and pleading for his life. He is freaking out in that pit. He knows that he's going to die. He's pleading for his life, sobbing, crying, panic attack. Who knows what's going on in the bottom of that pit? And his brothers do what? They sit down and eat lunch. Like who, who does that? That's like a scene from a Tarantino movie. Like it is cold, blooded, callous, ruthless. Because not only does, does their intentions sit there, now their intentions sit there over time and their intentions sit there despite the fear of their little brother. This is pretty brutal stuff. They sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh. And on their, way, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his, his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. He figures out in his head, you know what? People trafficking is probably not as bad as murder. They're both pretty bad, let's be honest, right? But it's the lesser of two evils at this point. So he says, let's sell him, let's traffic our brother, let's profit from it, let's not murder him, for he is our own flesh and blood. And his brothers listened to him. Verse 28, the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned from the pit and saw what, that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, a sign of great grief, and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped it in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to, the fa to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him and Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to the place of the dead, to my son mourning. Literally, I will grieve till the day I die, which is fair, given for a parent who has lost a child. Thus, his father wept for him. Meanwhile, while all of this is taking place, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but as you think about life and perhaps your life, you think, life's not fair. There's certain things that happen in life that just feel like they're not fair. Perhaps some form of injustice has been committed against you. Perhaps you've been cheated. Perhaps something has been stolen from you and it feels like it's not fair. Life is not fair. I mean, that you might be thinking, well, thank you for telling me something that I already knew so acutely. Life's not fair. I know this because on Friday, um, as we were preparing for dinner, Tash said to Judah, our six-year-old, how was school today, buddy? And he was happy up until that point. And he put his face down. And he said, not good, not good. And we said to him, why, buddy? Why? 
why wasn't your day good? He said, well, at recess, we were playing touch footy. And touch footy is actually code for tackle footy, just so you know. We were playing touch footy and I went to tip Bailey and this other person pushed me. And so I accidentally pinched Bailey and hurt him and he cried and he told the teacher and I had to sit on the sideline and miss part of the game. It's not fair. And Tash offered him words of comfort. And I said to him, you know what, mate? You're right. It's not fair. And that's life. Life is not fair. That's just how it rolls sometimes. And you might be thinking, how cruel. It's okay, Tash is there, we balance each other out. That's how it works in our family. But perhaps, you know, sometimes we feel the unfairness of life a little bit more acutely than that. Many years ago, I was studying at Bible college to prepare for a career in vocational ministry, to be a pastor of a church. And I got about a year and a half into that degree and felt so disillusioned and lost a sense of call that I decided I would quit going to quit. I was running from ministry and I was going to do something else. I didn't know what that other thing was, but after a season of prayer, I felt that God had said, you know what? You're free to do this. You can glorify me in any way you want. And so I chose to drop out of Bible college and start uni. At 27, I went to uni and started a Bachelor of Exercise Science. And my goal was to be an accredited exercise physiologist to help people who needed to exercise. Because I couldn't be a physio. I wasn't smart enough. And so physiologist was the next best thing. And so I went off to uni and I started my uni degree. And about a year and a half into my uni degree, halfway through, my uni came, the uni came to us all three years, first, second, and third, and they, they pulled us all together in this big meeting. They said, you know what, guys? Actually, this course is no longer accredited. I was like, what? So you imagine studying four years to be a physiotherapist, and at the end of it, the Australian Association of Physiotherapy says, sorry, your course wasn't accredited. You've got a degree, but you can't practice. That's what happened to every single person in my degree. And it was so frustrating We complained, we held student meetings, we got the student advisors and everything and complained and wrote letters and complained some more and some more and some more and nothing happened. Nothing could be done about it. I decided I was going to drop out of that degree and go study at one of the unis that were accredited and I rang those unis and they said, sorry, you'd have to start again. And so here I am in the space of two years at a second fork in the road in my career, what would I do? Should I go back and do the Bible stuff or should I continue on this path? What should I do? And it felt so unfair. In fact, I remember a moment where I was driving to uni. I was living in Rudy Hill and I drove all the way into the inner west for uni. And I remember driving into uni and on the radio came an ad for my university advertising my course. Come and study exercise science at this university. And... uh, just in case that ever gets out. And um, I was so angry. I was like, that's not fair. How can you advertise for a course that isn't accredited? Wasn't fair. Hey, life's unfair sometimes. It's just how it rolls. Well, perhaps for you, you feel that even more acutely. Perhaps there have been circumstances of injustice in your life that, that are thick for you. Betrayal of a relationship, being taken advantage of, suffering really significant loss. I was talking to a guy just the other week when I was in, um, in LA preaching at a church over there whose business partner was trying to take the business that he had started off him. He's going to lose it all. Significant loss, betrayal, injustice. And the question that arises is where is God in those moments? 
Like, what is he doing when we suffer injustice like that? Where is he? I don't know where you're at this morning, but I believe that every single person in this room needs to hear this message. Because I believe this, this story that we've just read this morning is a powerful message that reminds us that even though life is unfair, it doesn't mean that God's not there. Even though life is unfair and we know it's unfair, doesn't mean that God is not there. Because God is there with Joseph. He's, he's with him in the pit. So last week we were introduced to this guy, Joseph. He's the favourite son of... Um, Israel or Jacob. He's been blessed. He's been lavished. He's been favoured above his brothers. And this combination of favouritism and Joseph dreams about his brothers and his family um, being ruled by him cause a deep, deep mess in his family. There's family dysfunction. And today in this passage, we see that dysfunction absolutely erupt to the point that Joseph's brothers want to murder him. Pretty significant. You think your family's bad? This family is completely messed up. Now, yes, Joseph was spoiled. Yes, his father showed favoritism. Yes, he probably should have been a little bit more discerning about the sharing of the dreams bit, but none of this was fair. Joseph deserved none of this. He didn't deserve to be in the pit. He didn't deserve to be sold into slavery. He didn't deserve to be treated like this by his brothers. This is a case of injustice and it is unfair. And I can only imagine in that moment, Joseph asking the question, God, what are you doing? Where are you? This feels so unfair, God. How could you let this happen? What about the dreams? God, what about the dreams? It's not fair. I don't know if you notice, as, as we've read through Genesis 37 this week and last week, God is not even mentioned once. He's absent for years throughout the narrative here. God is not mentioned once. Where is he? Go back to Abraham's promise in Genesis 12. God promises him three things. I promise to give you land. I promise to make your family very big. And I promise to bless you and bless the world through you. And we get to Genesis 37. You're like, God, what is happening? The family's a mess. They're trying to murder each other. There's certainly no blessing. Where are you, God? It seems as if he's disappeared. But if we pay, pay close attention to the events in this story, you notice a number of coincidences that occur. A number of things that just so happen to take place. A chain of events that if this one event didn't happen, then the next event wouldn't happen and the next event wouldn't happen and it wouldn't have ended out the way that it ended out in Genesis chapter 50 and God's plan would have played out. A number of holy coincidences. The first is there is a man in the field and as Joseph comes to Shechem, the man just so happens to be there at the time that Joseph arrives and the man just so happens to have overheard his brothers saying they're leaving and going to Dotham and he just so happens to be there to tell Joseph that that's the case. Now, if that hadn't happened, if that man wasn't there to overhear the conversation and then happened to be back there as Joseph turns up, Joseph would have arrived at Shechem, looked around and gone, huh, my brothers aren't here. I can't find them. He'd go back home and say, Dad, I couldn't find them. I don't know where they are. I don't know what's happened. 
and he wouldn't have been in the pit. He wouldn't have been sold. He wouldn't have been a part of his house. He wouldn't have been in the jail. He wouldn't have interpreted the dreams and he wouldn't have been prime minister of Egypt if this hadn't taken place. The second coincidence that occurs is Reuben intervenes. You notice there, Reuben is very quick to uh, intervene in this circumstance. The brothers all agree together that they should murder and kill Joseph. And Reuben decides that he is going to step in and do, it, do something about it. He's quick on his feet. He doesn't quite have the plan all figured out. So he says, hey, hey, let's not kill him. Sure enough, throw him in the pit. That's a good, that's a good idea, but let's not kill him. And then Reuben has a plan that he's trying to figure out what to do next. But in that moment, Reuben intervenes. If Joseph is killed and thrown into the pit, he doesn't get sold into slavery. He doesn't go to part of his house. He doesn't, you know, the, the chain of events doesn't happen. The third coincidence is that a caravan of Midianite traders just so happens to be cruising past at the time that the brothers are sitting down, callously eating their lunch while their brother Joseph is pleading for his life in the pit. And this caravan of Midianite traders happens to be a traveling caravan of people who would sell and trade goods and also people. Slave trade was live and well. And in that moment, Judah decides that he also has a brilliant idea and his idea is to sell his brother Joseph instead of killing him. He's unaware of Reuben's plan to rescue his brother. We're not too sure of Judah's intentions either, but he has a bright idea to not kill Joseph, but to sell him. And so they sell him into slavery to the Midianite traders. If that hadn't occurred, he wouldn't have ended up in part of his house. He wouldn't have ended up in jail. He wouldn't have ended up in terrible dreams. Wouldn't, Genesis 50 wouldn't have happened. The next chain of events, the next coincidence that occurs is that the Midianite traders get to Egypt and they sell Joseph to Potiphar, who is a high-flying uh, official in Pharaoh's army. And he just so happens to have a very saucy and seductive mistress for a wife. And she seduces Joseph. But you know what? The Midianite traders didn't have to sell Joseph to Potiphar. I mean, what about all the other people that were looking for a new slave, a new person to work in their field? How come Joseph just didn't get sold to an average Egyptian? Work the, how come the Midianites didn't keep him for himself? Or perhaps sell him in the next major city they went to? No, no, it just so happened that they sold Joseph to Potiphar. He worked in Potiphar's house with Potiphar's wife and ended up in... And so... All of these coincidences took place. What do we make of that? Fate, chance, luck, unlucky, or divine providence. God perfectly orchestrating the events of life to make his plan happen. I don't know if you um, saw that movie a number of years ago, and by a number of years ago, I mean like 1998, and I realized some of you you know, we're still in diapers at that point. So uh, the movie was called Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow. And the movie outlines a number of different alternative life options that she has if certain circumstances in her life took place or didn't take place. And so in one, you know, narrative, one script, she drops an earring in the lift. She bends down to pick the earring up. She just so happens to miss her train. And because she's missed her train, she doesn't get home in time to get home in time to walk in on her husband having an affair with her best friend. That's one alternative life narrative that happens. The other alternative life narrative is she doesn't drop the earring. She catches the train. She gets home. She catches her husband and her best friend in the act. And that's a second alternative. And there's all these you know, intermingling alternative options for how her life played out, whether or not certain circumstances happened or not. 
And you kind of get the feeling that that's what, the, that's what it feels like here in Genesis chapter 37. But I think the author includes these seeming irrelevant pieces of information, like a random dude in a field. To just uh, He includes that there so that we would know that God is at work behind the scenes. That his name may not be written there, but he is the one who is behind the scenes orchestrating these events and making sure that they took place. Theologians call this divine providence. That God is the supervisor of even the small moments. That he is the artist of even the fine brushstrokes of life. That God is intimately involved in the details. Now you might be sitting there thinking, that's nice, that's that's cute that you would think that God's in control of everything. It's also naive. But I want to say to you, that's what we believe because that's what this book teaches us. We don't worship an impotent God. We don't worship a God who has created this world but then sits back and is detached and uninvolved. No, no, we worship a God who is intimately involved and in control of all of the details, including the coincidences, including the irrelevant bits including the minute details of our lives and this story. But if you think about it, what is the alternative to a God who's in control of everything? Fate? Chance? Luck? Unluck? I mean, that cripples so many people. So many people look back on their life and think, oh, what would my life have been like if 20 years ago I made this choice instead of that one? What would my life have been like? What would have my life have been like if my uni degree wasn't unaccredited and I finished that degree and became an exercise physiologist? Like what would life have been like? And fate and chance and luck can cripple us because we think I have to make the right decision. I have to choose the right path of all of the infinite possible choices and be God of our lives. Much prefer my version where we worship a God who's in control of everything and He's good and He has a plan and a purpose. And even when things don't work out, even when we are dealt an unfair hand, we can trust that there's a good God who stands behind it and He's working things out according to His purpose. We don't believe in fluke or chance or luck. We believe in a God who's in control. Proverbs 16, 33 says this, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. We may cast the lots, but God is the one who determines which one is chosen. God is in control. But as just a little tangent here, this is, this is free, just as an aside. Circumstances like this are not a good guide. Circumstances are not a good guide. I've heard people say things to me like, um, oh, you know, I met this girl and she was wearing a red jumper and Man, she was just so beautiful. And then I got in my car and I drove home and I followed a red car the whole way home. Like the whole way home, every turn I took, it took as well. And I got home and I thought, it's a sign from God that I need to marry the girl in the red jumper. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, like it's only with the benefit of hindsight that we can look back and go, ah, oh, now I see. Now I see what God is doing. But before that, you don't see. We don't know. We're not God. We can't see the whole story circumstances are not a good guide. Our scriptures, prayerful depends on the spirit, the wisdom of, and counsel of community, they're good guides. 
circumstances can be a very, very bad guide at times. And so I believe that this story is recorded for us to know that even when life is unfair, God is still there. Even though life is unfair, it doesn't mean that God is not there. So how do we trust God when we find ourselves in the pit? How do we trust God when the dreams just don't come true? Well, I want to offer three suggestions for you this morning to remind us of these truths. The first is this. We don't see the whole picture. In our lives, we don't see the whole picture. In Joseph's life, what did he saw? He, he saw the walls of a cistern. He saw a pit. That's all he saw. He saw 11 brothers who were out to take his life. That's all, that's all he saw. He didn't see God's plan. He didn't see the unfolding events that were about to take place. He saw none of it. And it will take 13 years before any of that makes sense to Joseph. 13 years. 13 years of wondering why his brothers would throw him in a pit, why they would sell him to Midianite traders, why he ended up in Potiphar's house, why he was falsely accused and thrown in jail. Why, 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 why? All of this didn't make sense for 13 years in Joseph's life. Why? Because he didn't see the full story. All he saw was the circumstance that he found himself in. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's all you see. A number of um, years ago, actually very many years ago, I was about uh, 10 or 11 years old. I remember trying to help my dad mow the lawn. And uh, we immigrated from South Africa to Australia. And in South Africa, you didn't have a petrol-powered lawnmower. We had electric-powered lawnmowers with these gigantic extension cords that you'd run to your house and then mow your lawn. And so there I am. We're living in Wollongong at the time. And I'm mowing the front lawn thinking, I am the king because I get to mow the lawn. I'm a man. And I'm mowing and my lines are perfect. And my dad's standing up on the front porch and he starts yelling at me. And I'm thinking, what? Look how good this is. I'm doing such a great job. What do you yell? He was angry at me and he's yelling at me to stop. I was like, what do you mean? This is the best lawn mowing that's ever been done. And he comes running off the front porch and he grabs the mower and he pulls it out of my hands. And I was shocked. I was angry. I was hurt. I was upset. But what I didn't see was lying amongst the long grass was the extension cord that I was about to roll straight over and mow over and potentially electrocute myself and die. You see, all I saw was my amazing job that I was doing. But my dad, with the benefit of perspective and a bit of height, saw very present danger in front of me. We don't see the full story. All we see is our circumstance. All we see is our moments. But we have a God who sees the whole story. And so if you find yourself there, if you're in the trial, if you're in the season where life feels unfair, I want to say to you this. Your trial, your injustice is not the full story. It's not. There's more. And you can't see it. But God is doing something. There's more going on than we can understand. And sometimes God gives us the mercy of letting us know what he's doing. And other times he doesn't. Sometimes we just never know. This side of glory, we will never know. And God doesn't actually owe it to us to let us know. But sometimes in his grace and mercy, he does. But the, the reality is we see our circumstance 
God sees the big picture. He sees it all. The second thing that helps us trust God when we find ourselves in the pit is to know that God's hand is often hidden, that God's hand is often unseen, that God is at work, but it doesn't appear obvious. In fact, God's handiwork here was hidden for more than a decade in Joseph's life. He just didn't know. And yet despite the injustice, God was at work. At every step of the journey, God was intricately weaving together the narrative of this story to make it work out the way he wanted it to. And Joseph didn't see God's hand. In fact, it felt like to him the exact opposite. I want to say to you, God is working even when you can't see it. God is working behind the scenes. His hand is often hidden and it might feel the exact opposite of God working. But he's there. He's working. He has a plan. He sees. He knows. Just because life's not fair doesn't mean that God's not there. Thirdly, we need to remember that God bends even evil to achieve his purposes. That God takes even circumstances of deep injustice and he uses them to achieve his purposes. God would take the murderous intent of Joseph's brothers and use that for good and use that to save the world and use that to preserve his promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12. That God can take evil and injustice and bend them to achieve his purposes. And God remains just as capable today as he was back then to do that in your life. He can take your trial. He can take the wrongs committed against you. He can take your injustice. He can take that unfair deal that has been dealt your way. And he can take those things and he can use them for his glory, for your good, and for the blessing of others. Time and time again, we read that God does that over and over again. You know, Joseph's trial was preparation for blessing. God was at work. Joseph couldn't see the full story. He couldn't see God's hand at work. All he saw was evil, but God used that for his purposes. But really the best example of that is not the life of Joseph. It's actually the life of Jesus. His life, his trial, his crucifixion. You see, the cross has to be the grossest injustice known to humanity because Jesus was perfect. He did nothing wrong. In the 33 whatever years of his life, he never committed a sin. He never hurt anyone. He never disobeyed his heavenly father. He lived a life of perfect righteousness and then he dies a criminal's death. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking of the death of Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. By Jesus' injustice, we are healed. By the unfairness of the cross, we are healed. We are set free. We are forgiven. We are made righteous. God is the one who takes evil intent and bends it 
towards his purposes, his glory, and ultimately the blessing of all people. Jesus was sold by a brother for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed by Judas. Unfairly tried, false witnesses came against him, sentenced to death, taken by Roman soldiers, and they put a robe on him and a crown of thorns on his head, and then they mocked him and spat on him and beat him. And then they stripped that robe off him and led him towards his death, just like Joseph. And there Jesus, in what can only be described as an act of unfairness, dies on the cross for your sin and mine to bless the world. Just because life is unfair doesn't mean that God's not there. He's there. Even when you can't see it, even when you can't see the full story, even when we can't sense that God's hand is at work, even when life deals us an unfair hand, God's there. He's there, He's working, He's in control of every millisecond of every day, of the small details. There are holy coincidences that He has ordained and, and said would take place to achieve His purposes. He has a plan. And today, God is calling you to trust Him, wherever you're at, to trust His goodness, to trust that He sees the full story, to trust that He is working, to trust that He's good. Perhaps you've never done that before. You've never fully trusted God with your life. You've never handed everything over to Him. Today, God is beckoning you and calling you to do that. He's worthy of it. I want to close by sharing a story of a man that I saw over many years do that very thing. His name is Joe. I went to church with Joe and his family a number of years ago. Joe was a, a Western Sydney working class man, if there ever was one. Worked in a production line in a factory, very hard manual labor, but worked hard to provide for his family, got married, bought a house in the Western suburbs, and worked to pay that mortgage off. Had a family, had kids coming to our church. And after a couple of years, Joe finds out that his best mate has had an affair with his wife, his best friend. Crushing. Unfair. But Joe leaves his house to find out later on that his best mate is living in his house with the money from his mortgage that he was paying off, eating off his table, sleeping in his bed with his wife and his kids. Joe was a fairly intimidating looking guy, big Maltese, looked like a bikey, rode a Harley Davidson. And needless to say, the police were concerned and so they unfairly slapped Joe with a AVO, apprehended violence order to keep him away from his ex-wife. And so he couldn't go near his house, couldn't go near his family, couldn't do anything about it. On one night, he um, had arranged with his ex-wife to go and see a play that his kids were in at school. He was gonna go this night, she was gonna go that night. He went on the night that they had agreed and she turned up as well and then reported him for breaching his AVO. And the police arrested him and put him in jail. And he spent a couple of nights in jail. And you can imagine in that moment, how unfair is this? He didn't choose this. He's not responsible for this. This is unfair time and time again. 
You would have forgiven Joe for being angry and raging and crying out to God, why has this happened? How could I end up in this spot in jail? But you know what he did? He decided that God had put him there for a reason. And that perhaps there were no other people other than him who could preach the good news of Jesus to the other inmates that he was in prison with. And so he decided to take his Bible every day, head out in the courtyard and very publicly read and share the good news of Jesus with anyone who was willing to listen. He did that for the couple of days and nights that he was in jail. Eventually, Joe was released and cleared of any charges and wrongdoing. But a number of years later, Joe was diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer. And he fought a battle against cancer. And in the end of 2017, he lost that battle and passed away, leaving his wife, four kids, a house that he had paid off and never really got to enjoy. You think to yourself, how unfair. Of all the people who had been godly, who had demonstrated that he could walk through a season of suffering and still cling to Jesus and and then cancer. It's not fair. You know, in all the years that I saw Joe walk through his journey of cancer and indeed walk through all of the circumstances of his life that were unfair, I never once heard him complain. Now, he may have. He certainly didn't do it publicly. But what Joe did do throughout his his battle with cancer was very publicly journey through that in a real and raw way. He posted everything online, including how horrendous chemotherapy was, including how horrible the nausea was, all of it. He shared it all. But he also shared his deep and abiding hope in Jesus and then called people themselves to trust in him. Not once did I see a public Facebook comment or an interview on stage where Joe complained. He, for me, is a hero. I look at Joe's life and I think, God, I want to be like that. I don't want the circumstances. But I don't want the faith. That whatever trials I face, I would be like that. Friends, even when life is unfair, it doesn't mean that God is not there. He is there. He has a plan. He's working. He's good. You can't see the full picture. God's hand is often hidden, but He does take evil and bend it for His purposes. And today I want to call you to trust that good God, to trust Him. I'm going to respond this morning to that God in a couple of ways. The first is with the Lord's Supper. Through this meal, a meal for those of you who love Jesus, this is a reminder of God's presence. This is a reminder that God takes evil and uses it for good. For in the death of Jesus, His body was broken. And that is the bread that represents His body broken. His blood was shed. The grape juice represents that. So we invite those of you who love Jesus to come forward, dip the bread in the grape juice, eat it. And remember, this is what our God does. Our prayer team is up the back. They would love to pray for you this morning. If you have any need whatsoever, they would love to be praying for you. Please head to the back. They have orange lanyards around their neck. And finally, our giving containers have come around. We're going to ask you to give generously and joyfully. If you're a guest with us this morning, please, you are under no obligation to give. Simply be our guest and let those giving containers pass you by. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to worship together and respond. So please join me. I'm going to invite you to stand as well, church, as the band comes out. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are good. Even when we don't see it, 
even when it seems like you're gone, that you've abandoned us, we thank you that you are still there, that you are still present and that you have demonstrated that in none other than the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. Father, help us to be people of faith who would trust you in the pit. Fill us with your spirit for this task. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.